Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. I'm here today with Fidel Rodriguez, who I did not know until I had said, and uh, he really enlightened me. He talked about things that really I did not know about, and so I wanted to sort of help um, other people understand sort of a little bit of that history. Fidel, how are you? Thanks for taking some time to be on the show. How are you today? I'm doing really great today, and um, thank you so much for, you know, those compliments i really appreciate that and appreciate the yeah. invite let's go right in there uh, there was there's been a street in santa barbara called indio muerto and can you talk to me fidel about what's wrong with this sign and and what does it mean to somebody who's native american and and why does it have to go as soon as possible well i mean i think the the first thing to look at is you know we look around and we always see signs right signs and symbols and symbols usually have a uh, underlining message behind them. Most of the time, most of us don't even understand that or think about that because it, it's they're like subliminal messages. That's the whole notion behind marketing and promotion, uh, especially with commercials. So uh, let's see, what year was that? About 1997, 96. I was uh, I was a McNair scholar at USC, and I. Um, I was given the task to kind of begin to develop a thesis or a prospectus around um, something that I wanted to pursue a PhD in. And so what I ended up doing was I, I started analyzing old Spanish days, which is another celebration in Santa Barbara. Um, I wrote a, a paper called Decolonizing the Mind, a Postmodern View of White Supremacy, Symbols of Conquest. And so the whole notion behind that, I began to decode old Spanish days and the Spanish colonial period and the American colonial period. Um, but then, like I said, I, I came across in the Omerto Street when I kind of got, I guess I want to say I, I, I had some issues that happened in my own life that um, I almost went to prison at 22 years old. Um, at 23, I went, I didn't go to prison. I, I was able, that's a whole nother story. Um, I was blessed to be able to not go to prison and I ended up, that was my wake up call. That was my moment of clarity, so to speak. And so I enrolled in a, in a history class at Santa Barbara city college, um, with a man named Tony Jackson who completely changed my life. Um, and simultaneously I read the autobiography on Malcolm X. So that was the first time in my life that I ever had any notion of like consciousness and history. And wow, if, if black people had this type of history, I wonder if Mexicans and natives people had this. And so those years became something that as I began to walk around Santa Barbara at, you know, 23, 24 years old, I started to see things differently. And that's when I saw the dead Indian street in the Omerto street. And so doing this research at USC um, in around 96, 97, I began to like decode what in the Omerto Street meant. And I, what I said in the paper, the basis thesis is that you can, uh, you can take a symbol and you can begin to decode it and you will unveil the history of that symbol. So it can be Dead Indian Street. It could be Mount Rushmore. It could be you know, uh, the 10 freeway in LA is called the Christopher Columbus transcontinental highway. You could decode that and you could begin to unravel, um, this elephant that's in the room that <laughs> it's now beginning to see people are beginning to see it, but essentially, uh, dead Indian street is really symbolic of the, not only the colonial period of American expansion, but also the Spanish, um, colonial period that, you know, had a huge effect on, on uh, you know, eradicating and committing genocide upon Native people, not just in Santa Barbara, not only in the United States, but throughout uh, Central America and Latin America and South America, as we call it. What is it, you know, wh you have that sign and, you, you know, you have these people who will say, oh, come on, right? it was a long time ago. What does that sign do to somebody of Native American descent um, how can you help people understand how it actually impacts people today in the real world well yeah i mean here's the thing is that if you take any other ethnic group right and yeah. you were to juxtapose that name and put it on there um again one of the main um analogies i would always use whether i was presenting in la um, at a university or in high school and i would say if we called that sign dead Jew street what would we do as a society, as a community? And 99.9% .9 
if not 100%, people would say, heck no, we wouldn't stand for that. And it doesn't matter which, it didn't have to be Jewish Americans. It didn't have to be somebody who followed that faith. Um, it could be regular people. It could I mean regular people, other people such as, you know, Latinos, African Americans, etc. Because we have all been taught in, in public school system the atrocities that happened in Germany uh, with Jewish people. We know that. And so how does this affect native people? The issue is, is that most people don't know the intricate details of the native American Holocaust or the native mm -hmm. American genocide. And so what does this mean to people? Well, you look at, let's just look at COVID, right? Let's look at the numbers of people that are dying right now. Well, the top, the, the biggest ratio is native Americans. Again, symbolizing dead Indian, right? You're looking at the poverty levels. You look at the educational levels. You look at the health um, disparities with native people um, to name a street sign dead Indian street not only sends a very basic overt message but it also is a covert subconscious message not only to native people but to everybody because it kind of like reiterates the notion that only uh, the only good Indian is the dead Indian, which is, I think, mm -hmm. Theodore Roosevelt was pushing that at one time as well as many other people. It was kind of like this aphorism of the United States. Um, so the effects of it are detrimental. I mean, we again, we would not allow that if it was called Dead Jew Street. But so then why would we allow it as Dead Indian Street? And here, just to add one more point to it, is that I think the other part is that it was in Spanish, and I know a lot of people that I've taken to Santa Barbara, a lot of people of Jewish ancestry, a lot of people of African-American background who don't speak Spanish. And I said, oh, that sign right there says dead Indian. They're like, what? Mm -hmm. Are you ki you're kidding me? I think that's the other part of it is it, it's in Spanish. So nobody kind of like unless you, you speak Spanish, you're not going to really understand that. But if you're a person coming from Central America or South America that are now moving into Santa Barbara and you're primary language is Spanish and you see that oh my god it sends such a horrific message to one to be Indio is considered a derogatory term opposed to being indígena, which is indigenous right indigenous is more dignified but Indio to say Indio Muerto is like death to Indians mm -hmm. right and so that's a whole nother part of society that I think most people in Santa Barbara don't see just because they don't speak Spanish or they don't connect with you know any of the new uh immigrants that are in santa barbara so that's just an added layer but i think it, it's it's a horrific sign i think it's it, it can do massive amounts of psychological damage to people um of indigenous background but i think it also has another overlaying especially with european americans because of cognitive dissonance we're talking about finding ways the whole reason why we've been able to accept this is that History has been written in such a way that it conditions our minds. It's like, oh, that that didn't happen. Well, of course, you think it didn't happen because they didn't write about it in the history books. Mm -hmm. And most of us got our history from our public education system. And it wasn't like people were, you know, I was learning about the people's history in the United States by Howard Zinn. Right. Or David Standard, who wrote the American Holocaust. There's so many amazing professors out there that have written amazing um, history books. And they're just now etching into the, the curriculum um, in our country. So I don't know if I answered that. I hope I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you, I, there's so much there. But can you offer a little bit of a, a summary of the history of what we don't know about in terms of the Native American Holocaust? here uh you know people you know we didn't have old spanish days fiesta this year because of covid at least in its previous form yeah but we do yeah. we do so many things in santa barbara out of ritual and we celebrate the mission and we celebrate yeah. the culture of old spanish days and we just really don't know any of that history can you help us understand a little bit about what happened here in, you know, on the coast and, and, and why it's, it's a, such a missing part of, of what we should know. Well, I mean, I'm going to, it'll be as brief as I can. So let's just take yeah. it back to 1451 in the 1450s. Um, there was a doctrine that was put out. It's called the doctrine of discovery. And what the doctrine of discovery did, this is coming out of the church. It allowed any Christian to take any land that was governed or inhibited by 
or inhabited by any non-Christian. Okay, so it was, it was a doctrine. It was basically it was their 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 past to be able to take any land. So take it for instance, uh, Columbus. He went to Hispaniola, which is present-day Haiti and Dominican Republic. When they came across to the Taino, were the Taino going to be Christians? Well, most of us would say no because they didn't have Christianity in their culture. So with this doctrine of discovery, it gave them the God-given right to be able to take that land from those people. And so I start there because the byproduct of the doctrine of discovery, it went into South America. It went into Central America. It was Hernan Cortez. It went into Mexico, um, annihilated the, the Mexico known as the Aztecs. Um, and then as the Spanish expansion began to happen um, in the 1700s, they would go from Alta, uh, California, which is where we're at in Baja, California. And the Spanish began to, to colonize. And with them, they also brought the missions. And so we got to look at, you know, there was a shift of paradigms happening. And that just means a shift of way of living. So you had indigenous people who were very much connected, what we would probably consider green, right? Environmentalists um, connected to the earth, connected to the four shifts, the equinoxes and the solstices, um, and had different uh, ways of, of, of belief in creation. So it could be, you know, uh, deities could be aspects of nature, the mountains, the ocean, um, the rivers, um, their ancestors. And this could be generalized with all Native people, right? And so this shift of, of understanding was that no longer can you practice um, this, your way of living. Now we're going to give you a new way of living. And that became in the form of being Christianized. Um, and this Christianization during the colonization period in the 17th century and the 18th century had detrimental effects on the indigenous population. Um, it, you know, it, we're talking about annihilation, not only because one, you had the Spanish, right? The military arm, um, which would physically, um, in their pursuits of gold, um, physically would just annihilate native people. But then you had the psychological effect and that was the missionizing, um, of native people. And again, that they created what they would call neophytes and neophytes are basically Indian slaves. Um, and so this happened prior to the westward expansion. This happened prior to 1851 in Santa Barbara. So you had from the 1700s uh, and the 1800s in, in, in uh, Santa Barbara, you just had this mass amounts of, of murder and mm -hmm. annihilation, not only of people, but of culture. You know, when you shift the culture of somebody, you, you're basically indoctrinating them to become new human beings in the form of what you would like them to be. So you had a, a, a changing of language. You had a changing of what you believe uh, in terms of spirituality. Um, and then in comes the 1850s where, you know, um, I think I had mentioned that earlier that the, the um, governor at the time, uh, Governor Burnett, uh, his first state of the state address was basically a message in within his state of the state address to go and exterminate native people. Um, because if you don't, they're going to take us out. And so this was also on the, you know, on a, a carried history of genocide that the Spanish had done. And even that went, you know, it went from new Spain and then it became Mexico. Um, so there was also a, a part of, a period of time when Mexicans were also being oppressed, uh, oppressive to, um, I'll say the more Spaniard Mexican Mexicans would be more oppressive to the native population that was still in existence. So it's almost like there was a triple whammy. You had the, the, the colonization period of the Spanish, then you had the Mexican period, which is very short term. And then you have the United States period from, uh, 18, you know, I think the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo was 1848, I believe. Um, to, you know, to basically the last step of colonization and eradication of native people. This is when they hired militia and frontiersmen and they didn't have any sheriff's departments at the time. So these, you know, if you were European American and you were coming across and you were in search of gold and you're trying to set, you know, yourself in a new way of life, um, you began to, you know, you would 
get so much money for for you know bounties and and scalps and stuff and this is what the governor was pushing he was pushing a norm that was basically annihilate the native people but again just to go back to the 17th and 16th uh, the mm-hmm. 17th 18th century the colonization period in summary was just basically the genocide of native people um mm-hmm. hitler studied the genocide the american genocide policies of the united states i mean mm-hmm. He took a lot of those concepts and utilized them in his annihilation or his attempt to annihilate um, Jewish people in, in Germany. So wow. it, it, it's very reflective of a very horrific, horrific time period in the United States, which I think, and I'll just leave it at this, is that my whole thing with this is like, because I work with a lot of people and, and I guide them towards therapy, I guide them in healing circles. And the thing is, is that I see the United States on a macro level like a client. Right. And if your client is going through a his, you're you're getting their their life history so that you can understand the dynamics of maybe trauma, impacts on their soul, things that they have gone through. You have to address those, but you have to be transparent of the narrative. And I believe the issue with the United States as a whole, as a collective consciousness, is that we have not had that transparent narrative told in order for us to to heal. All of us, every ethnic group, we're part of this collective consciousness that has only shared one part of the narrative. The narrative, the master narrative has been controlled. And that's why we're having all these issues, whether it's with Black Lives Matter, whether it was with Japanese in concentration camps, whether it was, you know, with with women not being allowed to vote. All this stems from a a collective consciousness that has not been... uh, um, truth has not been told as a whole, right? They say truth is whole and any partial approach to truth can't give you anything but an incomplete answer. So we have to begin to shed those other narratives, not shed them, and bring them to the surface as if the United States is a client inside of a therapy session in order for us to address the issues that are happening so we can heal from it. So many people don't really understand how we got to the point that we got at this time to actually understand how they can actually be, make a difference or how they can be helpful to populations who have been historically oppressed. And I'm wondering if you could tell me, because you had said that before you took that that class at Santa Barbara City College, mm-hmm. that you were, you were one person and then you took it and it changed your life. What did you learn in that class that helped open your eyes to uh, the path that you would go down? Man, I, I got that other side of the history that I'm talking about. I got primary sources of information that I had never heard about. And it was such an enlightening experience to sit inside. It was an African-American culture class that I took at Santa Barbara City College. And to hear a professor speak with such dignity, such articulation and compassion um, for what he was talking about. it, It really it was I mean, it was all timing, right? It was. It took me 22 years for somebody to say, "Hey, you should read the Malcolm X book." I'm like, "Who the heck is Malcolm X? What kind of last name is that?" But when I read that narrative, it was like I started equating and paralleling a lot of the things that I experienced in Santa Barbara to Malcolm's life, and that really was the true um, pivotal point in my life was discovering Malcolm X's experiences with racism as a kid. And those experiences that he shared in his first part as he was um, Malcolm Little, you know, but then he became as he moved in uh, to Detroit Red. You know, there was a time in my life in Santa Barbara where I was selling cocaine and I was selling ecstasy and I was partying a lot. And mm-hmm. and and it's there's there's this thing I said, if you ever want to see somebody self-destruct, take away their identity, mm-hmm. take away the ability for them to even know who they are. Now, unfortunately, because my parents struggled in their lives, my father came here uh, to the United States in Santa Barbara, I think, when he was like 19 or 20. And my um, my mother is, like I say, six, almost seven generations in Santa Barbara that we know of. And um, they didn't have that, that, that history. They didn't have because they were working. They were trying to survive. And... Um, so to get these aspects given to me through Malcolm X's stories, through this class, it was something I never got in high school. Um, I just, I wish I did. And here's the other thing too, um, Josh, is that there might've been some teachers that were trying to, to say something to me, 
but I was so traumatized as a young person from some of the, the personal struggles with trauma that I had gone through that I just was, you know, my dad was, was not in my life. My mom was a single mom. We were poor. You know, we grew up in Santa Barbara. Um, the, all those are added dynamics, right, mm-hmm. to this notion that we're talking about history. It's like identity. It's like, man, we're poor. We're Mexican. We live in this little apartment. And then I go to high school or I go to middle school and I'm with all these other kids and I play football with them and we're really good. And then I spend the night at their house and they're, oh, my God, their house's kitchen looks like kitchen in, in a restaurant. Like mm-hmm. all that's tied into this. You know what I mean? So as we, I began to peer, peel these layers um, of this onion to get to the root of who I was, it was elements like Malcolm X. It was elements like uh, the Chicano movement or uh, Corky Gonzalez or Dolores Huerta's narrative. Uh, or, and then hip-hop played a huge aspect of my life, too, of enlightenment. As I was reading Malcolm X, I was listening to Public Enemy. I was listening to KRS-One. I was listening to... Uh, Mexican groups like a lighter shader brown and Cypress Hill and all this was intertwined with um, going to school and getting this alternative narrative so to speak it's really not an alternative narrative. now it's becoming more formative um, but it's unfortunate that you have to get to college to begin to get that information for me it wasn't until I I, I took a class at Santa Barbara City College too it was journalism class and uh, where I it was the first time I sort of felt any teacher ever say to me that uh, you have the um, ability to make mm. a difference in the world. Uh, you can make an impact, you're smart, you can do it, uh, and nothing in your past really matters. And so it's interesting that that it, it sadly takes until you know, you're 19, 20, 21, whatever time that is when you're in college for somebody to sort of uh, awaken you to that. And it may not happen enough with people of color in, in, um, in public high schools so you know that's that's a sh- i think you know what you just shared you have your version of it i have my version of it but yes. think of all those people who never went to city college or to college who never had that person sort of enlighten them you know and that, so i i just think it's it's just amazing when we hear these stories of just you know you turn one into one classroom and it's life-changing and if you turn yeah. a different way who knows what have happened t- t- tell me about sort of your uh your journey, um, you have a couple of high level degrees, you know, after you took that class, what did you do and how, you know, did you set a vision for how you were going to try to be impactful on the world or help me understand how you got from that class to where you're at now? You know, I, I'm going to mention two people. Um, so there was a, a, I'm not sure, Josh, if you went to Santa Barbara High School or not. Um, I think you're a little bit oh. younger than me. I went to DP. Sorry, you went to DP. Okay, yeah. uh, no worries. I went to DP for a semester, but uh, that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there was a, a principal that kicked me out of high school in my senior year. His name was Bill Jackson. Um, kicked me out, but then became a mentor. Right? Oh. <laughs> he mm-hmm. saw that I was labeled a gifted child when I was in the fourth grade in my my files, but because I was I had so many issues going on in school since I was like in elementary school. He said you were tracked. I was tracked. And I was like, okay. So that was the first time that I somebody told me that you're smart. Mm. Didn't do anything, didn't make the shift. But then as I went back to college after these incidents I told you about, then I met Tony Jackson. So I had Bill Jackson, the white <laughs> Mr. Jackson, who, st- who was never in my life in high school but completely stayed with me until I got into USC. Um, okay. And then Tony Jackson, who also came into my life. And so these men um, that came into my life begin to show me how to set short-term goals mm-hmm. in order to achieve long-term goals, right? And this is the first time I was hearing this language. I begin to have confidence in myself. I begin to listen. I begin to, to vision, right? of what I wanted to do with my life. And, and at that time, at the 23, 24, 25, I began to have these ideas that I wanted to be in the classroom, that I wanted to be able to share this information that I've been missing all my life that I felt was crucial to being able to, to create a pivotal change in somebody, especially young kids of color. And so that's kind of like the journey that I went on. And then, you know, like I said, these short term goals began to, you know, I, I, I began to get these high grades and 
getting A's in classes. And, you know, uh, Mr. Jackson first gave me an F on my first essay test in his class. And I was like, what? And he explained to me, you got to learn how to articulate yourself. You need to help, uh, learn how to present your ideas with sources and, and, and good grammar and all this stuff, stuff that I hated because I felt like I was stupid. So I had, you know, I, I did a lot, I did a lot of work, but as I got to a level and I moved to LA, then I started working in a lot of communities in Watts and South Central and East LA. And I began to mentor young people because again, I still had this desire, this passion to want to be able to assist young people in their journey, at least to drop a seed. Right. Um, yeah. and I ended up working at, I ended up getting an internship in my junior year, um, at clear channel. Uh, and then for some, how, however it worked out, I began producing radio and, and instead of me working in a classroom, the uh, airwaves became my classroom and uh, which was so that's why I understand the impact of a street sign like in the Omerto. I understand what media does. I understand what marketing and billboards do to your psyche. It's psychological, you know, um, there's so much data on what it does to us in terms of our belief systems and what we want to buy and, and what we feel about ourselves. So. Um, this journey going to USC, it opened up my world to traveling. I, I studied in Mexico. I studied in Zimbabwe. I studied in South Africa. I studied in Korea. Um, I traveled to Europe studying indigenous cultures. Um, I had South America, Peru, Costa Rica. Like I've been almost, I've been to over 20 countries and wow. culture has enlightened me enlightening me enlightened me to the fact of how powerful it is for us to to care for one another you know and to now where i'm at like i believe history is extremely important but i think our cultures if they cultivate the aspects of us being kind of us being caring for one another and us loving each other and I, i'm not saying that on some like you know new agey thing love is action and I believe each of our cultures hold that. You know, there isn't a country in this uh, in this world that I've been to where I'm walking on the street and people befriend me. And the next thing you know, they're like, no, you're not staying in a hotel. You come stay with us at our house. And I was like, what the hell is this about? Mm -hmm. It's what I've termed, uh, what I've learned in these travels and, and the things that I want to do is that I want to create we societies. We societies is not I societies. We societies is where we're befriending people, where we're caring for one another, where we're holding and we're breaking bread together. We don't do that in this country. It's very ego driven. And I, and I can only say that based on my own experiences in other countries where people don't know you, where people don't, you know, you don't look like them. Sometimes you don't speak their language. And then they're, they're putting out their hand and they're saying, you come home and eat with us. I'm like, man, you guys don't even know. And that's I what I feel. And I found that in Europe. I found that in Africa. I found that in Korea. found that in South America. And there are aspects of it here in the United States. That, don't get me wrong. But I'll leave it with this um, in terms of, like, this journey and where it's gotten me to is that I had an experience when I went to Zimbabwe. And um, I went to uh, South Africa. And then I flew into Harare, Zimbabwe. And I was left at the whole, at the airport. And I had met a doctor when I was flying from Amsterdam to South Africa. And, and he was an African doctor from Zimbabwe. And he ended up seeing me sitting in the airport. And he's like, what are you doing here? And I was like, oh, the school is supposed to pick me up. And nobody ever came. So he ordered his sons to get all my luggage, put me in the car. And they took me around the town showing me, like, places to eat, places to hang out. Um, and then about... Two hours later, we went to their house and his dad came to pick me up. His dad had found my school and drove me to take me there. Okay. Right. So I say that to say, what would have happened if I would have been dropped off at LAX? <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Right. And I share that with kids. I share that with adults and everybody had, you know, like you still be sitting there. I said, exactly. So how do we get back to this we society and, and going back to the colonial periods that we were talking about? Many of these indigenous people, right, went from a we society to an I society, which wow. basically destroyed who they were as a people. And it's part of the reason why we see so such high rates of suicide such high rates of alcoholism, 
such high rates of, of drug addiction, domestic violence, poverty. All this is a byproduct of the shift of going from the we society to the I society. So if you ask me what have I learned in that journey is that we have to treat each other with respect, but that can only come if we hold ourselves with dignity. Mm-hmm. Ourselves oh, so individually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so that's so powerful. You reminded me of when you were talking at the meeting, you used a term called hypervigilant, which mm-hmm. I, I went and looked up afterward. Obviously, I've heard the term before, but the context that you used it, I went and looked it up. And I'm wondering if you could, let me pick your brain a little bit. And this is the impression I got when you spoke, and maybe I'm wrong, but um, I got the sense that the trauma that indigenous people have faced over the years sort of can live on, you know, through the blood, through genetics, onto future generations to where you might have people today mm-hmm. who just sort of have that sense of being on edge, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that hypervigilance. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. is, do you think that's true? I mean, do you, you know, because one of the issues with racism is that people say there's no racism anymore. You know, we had Barack Obama as president and they'll point <laughs> to people of color in leadership positions and, and, and they'll say, look, everything's fine. And, you know, I have nothing against this kind of person at all. I'm not a racist not knowing that or not acknowledging that we don't start at the same point in time. But I'm wondering, do you think that that it's possible that people can carry from generation to generation, even though they may not have experienced it themselves, but, you know, their ancestors did a certain sense of uh, of, uh, of trauma? So I, I, I think what you're talking about is epigenetics. And um, so do I believe that you can carry um, trauma over generations? Yes and no. And the thought before was that um, you could carry diseases over generations, right? Um, through the study of epigenetics. But Dr. Bruce Lipton, who is a PhD and is actually quantified epigenetics, um, has shown us through countless experiments, right? Um, that we hold these receptors within the, our cells, right? And so if your family members, your grandparents, your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents have experienced some type of trauma, is there potential for you to carry that within your own system? And the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. However, right? And we're talking about however. The however is, is what kind of environment do we live in? The environment shapes the expressions of our cells. Okay? So if you are living in a traumatic environment still, right, as maybe your parents did or your great-grandparents or your great-great-grandparents, right, then those expressions of those genes are going to reenact or should I say bring out those traumatic uh, experiences that your ancestors went through as well as what you're going through concurrently. So, with that being said, if you are a young brown person, right, native person, and let's just say in Santa Barbara, for, and you live in a marginalized community, and you're experiencing high levels of trauma in school, um, issues of identity, et cetera, and your family uh, lineage has also experienced trauma in their past, and you're living in, a, in an environment that is congruent, uh, congruent or creating that, those traumatic experiences, the the chances of you opening up those those receptors is going to be highly likely right Mm -hmm. and it's the same thing with people just anybody with diseases cancer um hypertension um uh high blood pressure um it's the same thing it's the environment and that is that is called epigenetics and the study of that and it's also looking at quantum physics Quantum physics also talks about this, but the, the, about the energy, right? The mm-hmm. thing is, is that our consciousness creates a reality, mm-hmm. right? We can possess those aspects in our DNA and we can come from an extremely uh, uh, traumatic history, right? Mm-hmm. Just like Jewish people have. But right. why are they thriving now? Well, because they're not living in ghettos like they used to, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They're not suffering those aspects anymore, but 
it's like well, why are native people still suffering well look at the conditions that they've been push pushed upon to have to live under right if i take you through watts or, or areas of south central or east la and you see how people have to live every day it's no wonder that they have the highest um, cases of covid it's no wonder they have the highest cases of high blood pressure, hypertension, heart attacks, cancers. Because the conditions, the environment is shaping the expressions of the cells. Mm -hmm. So um, if anybody wants to look any of this stuff that I'm talking about, look up Dr. Bruce Lipton. He's a Ph.D. Um, I love studying him. There's him. There's Dr. Um, Dr. Uh, Gabor Mate, who's a childhood uh, trauma specialist as well as an addiction specialist. And these, these men are, you know, in their 70s and they've been studying this stuff forever. And we don't have to do more studies. The evidence is there. What we need to do is learn how to break it down so we can embody it and we can heal ourselves. Like, I'm at a very beautiful place in my life. I'm 51 years old and I have gone through this amazing healing process that has taken me this long. <laughs> but is it possible? Absolutely. Does In the Omerto Street have the same effect on me that it had when I was in my 30s? No. My consciousness has changed. I'm not mad. I just want it changed. I want the respect and dignity, not just for Native people, but for all people. Because we all deserve to not have to be affected or to see another aspect of our human race, right? There's no races. There's a human race. 99.9% .9 of all our genotype is exactly the same. So the fact that we still say different races, is, is an, it, it's completely fictional. There's no science behind that. Um, so the reason I say that is that we have the ability to change, but we have to change the environment. And by changing the environment means change the science. Tell me about uh, your work with young people uh, of color that you, you talked about briefly, you touched upon. Uh, what kind of stuff do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? And I guess going from there, looking at how do you empower a young person who may not want to or know how to set short-term goals or who may not have the self-esteem yet or hasn't found that mentor? Um, how do you sort of unlock that passion and fire in a person what i'm going to say is is going to be somewhat practical um i think the first and foremost thing that i've done over the years is i've, I've learned that the most important part doesn't matter what you're trying to, to to embody um or share with a young person it is about developing the relationship once you make and create a space whether that's in your own body when you're walking around or a space that you're working in to become a nurturing and safe space for a young person, mm -hmm. everything's golden. Mm -hmm. You can take them hiking. You can do a yoga class. You can write poetry. You can just sit and talk. And that is where the magic happens. The magic happens in the development of the relationship, mm -hmm. whether that becomes a mentor, a mentee for you or not the development of that relationship is crucial especially dealing with anybody that has suffered any type of childhood trauma and so over the years that is kind of what i began to understand especially working at the county where i was developing these pretty amazing uh, rites of passage programs through a lot of the networks that i was working with and you know sometimes they would ask well how are you how, how are you having this these successes with people and i said well it's not even about the success it's about the development of the relationship where you're actually just dropping seeds because you mean i've worked with tons of young people that i have mentored and been close with and they you know some, they fall off they end up in jail some of them have passed away um and so understanding that is that for those of us that go back and work in the community, I believe that it is not our job to save people. People have to save themselves, but you can embody that, that example of somebody that has changed and you emanate that in the work that you do, especially if they can relate to you and they know like, oh man, Mr. Rodriguez has been through this too. You know, and sometimes they're like, you've been through this stuff? I was like, man, come on. But I've changed. And that's what we're supposed to do. I'm not, I'm 51 years old. I'm not supposed to act like I was when I was 20 or 30 for that or 40 for that matter. We are constantly evolving. And I think, again, getting back, the more that I know myself, Josh, 
the better I know myself, the better I know my triggers, the better human being I can become to be able to help somebody else. I don't even need to tell people anything. They're just like, damn, you got this crazy energy with you, man, like a good energy. <laughs> and because I, I it, we can change. We can go. I'm not a dead Indian. I'm a live Indian. <laughs> you know what I mean? I have fought just like my ancestors have fought to regain myself, to be dignified, to 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 have confidence in myself. And when I'm able to to emanate that and and more importantly, love myself to a point where I just emanate that with the young people and the adults that I work with, that's where it's at. So anybody who is mentoring or a teacher, the more they work on themselves, their craft will go to a whole nother level. You know, I think it's probably just that idea of when you've overcome so much and then you have this idea of like, I got to help other people help themselves, you know, and you tend to tend to people like that tend to radiate that that energy. I want to ask you, uh, you know, you say you're 51 and you're in a really good place in your life. Can you talk a little bit about what are some of the the challenges that you still have to overcome as an educated man? I'll give you an example of something, you know, like implicit bias, subconscious bias, whatever it is. I also teach journalism. I teach in one of the, well, not now because of COVID, um, in one of those portable buildings. And uh, it is hot in those buildings. And the air conditioning goes out all the time and uh you know i wear I, i'm what i always wear a tie i i wear uh, slacks i wear a uh nice shirt way back when when i was a young reporter i had an editor tell me you know you need to dress up every day you can't mm. come in like a surfer uh you know reporter in a newsroom because people are going to judge you and you know i sort of that stuck with me that i always kind of overdress a little bit you know i walked in you know so like you know i have the classroom before um another teacher you know we we're sharing the classroom and so i have the, i had the classroom afterward and so i walk in it's hot and i'm like frustrated I'm like oh my goodness, this teacher messed with the air conditioning. I had it set yesterday. It was perfect. And now it's not working. And so like I walked in, went straight to the air conditioning. The teacher says, oh, facility sent somebody to fix the air conditioner. And I was sort of like, I don't know how to respond to this because on one hand, it, it totally makes sense. I'm a man going to an air conditioning. Maybe facilities did send me. On the other hand, I've been coming to this classroom and you know who I am. And it was one of those things where like, I did not react in a way that was like hostile because you kind of get used to like, oh, it's just one of those things, you know, but it affected me. It was just sort of fascinating to me. Do you have examples, you know, you know, of how you kind of deal with this, even at this age, even when you're really successful, uh, whether it's stuff like that, which is subconscious bias or it's overt or not. And how do you navigate that even when you've got all this education and information and empowerment in your head? You know, it's it's a great question. Um, and I don't want to act like I'm looking at the world through a rose-colored uh, lens. Um, I haven't had to experience that in a while and now let me let me it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist it means that my reactions to it have changed okay right i i i sometimes find myself in the present moment all the time so i'm not my mind doesn't go to a subconscious history and memories where i have where most people are projecting right 95 percent yeah. of all of our thoughts are in our subconscious mind which is the historical past most people are not in the present time when they're actually telling you something, you know, it's unfortunate that that experience had to happen to you because what people see every day, like even during COVID, like I run every day. So I'm on my, my, you know, morning runs and I'm saying hello to all the gardeners who are all mm -hmm. Mexican and Latino. Right. Yeah. But I was like, man, I was like, man, they're still working. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh -huh. While everyone's locked down, they're still working. And that the same goes for, you know, any restaurant you go to. It's usually Latinos and Mexicans that are working. Same thing with janitorial services. Same thing with facilities. So people have been indoctrinated. I don't know what ethnic background this person was. But to think that we're not able to, you know, because I know sometimes people are like, God, you're the minute I speak, Josh, I already know like, oh, he's smart. Uh -huh. It wasn't always like that. 
but right. I'm saying that it, it, it has shifted that. You know what I mean? So a lot of times I stay quiet. I'm in a lot of, you know, uh, big meetings, you know, with high profile, uh, I don't know, whether it's media corporations or or government uh, departments. And I think it's how we carry ourselves. Again, I'm not diminishing or dismissing the experience you had, but yeah. your reaction to it, your response to it is the key point, right? Yeah. Because you, how you carry yourself is your dignity. Right. That's that person's projection. Yeah. It's a teachable moment. And it's also a time that you could respond in a way, go, oh, no, I'm actually a, a professor here. I teach journalism. You know what I mean? I'm not sure why you thought I was. It, maybe it's because I was Latino. And you, you drop a seed to make them go home and go, like, ah, I feel like such an idiot. You know what I mean? Right, or right. or something to make people reflect. Because I think the normal thing, and, and now let me tell you, when I was younger, we used to experience that. Me and my mom used to go to JCPenney, and we would have the security guard trailing us in that place. And my mom would suddenly like, excuse me, is are you following us for a reason? So has these things happened in my life? Absolutely. But I think the the more we're able to work on our own triggers, especially mm -hmm. as people of color, and we can respond in a much different way that's going to make them see things differently to be like, oh, my God, I'm like, I'm such an idiot. And the thing is, the other part of it, too, is white fragility is real. Yeah. OK, it is real. And I say that because I've had experiences with people that I know they're close and, and empathizing with our experiences is not the norm. It's just not. There's, we have a long way to go in terms of education. We have a long way to go to get everybody on the same um, on the same plane so we can understand each other. We can understand how this country was formatted, how the social stratification has happened, and why somebody would assume that you were a facilities worker in a college that you teach at. But those are the things that we have to unpack. We have yeah. to. That's why you're in the classroom because then right. that can also become a, a, a teachable moment for your students, especially if you have young Latino or African American or any uh, person of color that is going into that field because they yeah. probably will experience that if they go work at the LA times or if they go to NBC or what have you, you're going to experience that. But how we navigate that, it's like our resilience and our dignity becomes part of who we are. Yeah. Um, we could be the angry person, right? All day long, but then it right. just feeds into their own stereotypes about us. You know, it is what it is. And of course there's so much to be said about not reacting because you know, it's always the reaction too, you know, when Always. you're a young person and you overreact to something that happened to you that you perceived as negative, you're the one who gets in trouble. Yes. It's, no one ever wants to listen to what, what triggered you or what sparked you. So, I mean, that is definitely good advice. Uh, you know, let's, let's kind of wrap up here, but I wanted to ask you, you know, we've seen this country shift with the George Floyd killing and the reaction with protests and Black Lives Matter really moving to the mainstream and that effort. And now we're seeing it sort of spill over to other uh, groups who are trying to demand change. You know, we there's no tolerance uh, on a national level for a lot of things that people were tolerating just six months ago. The Washington Redskins, you know, they changed their name. Uh, yeah, you you were you were working on changing Indio Muerto long before the you know this recent uh, awareness of, of this type of uh, a name. Um, it, it took this long, but you you were doing it a while ago. Do you think we're at a, a point now where things are going to get a lot better for good, or do you think that it's just a moment in time and a year from now? Things will settle back to the way they they were. What's your sort of outlook? I, I believe this is the beginning of a change. I don't yeah. think it's going to be easy. I think it's going to be a lot of hard work. And I think we need to take it to a higher level, right? So if, let's just break down Black Lives Matter. So when we look at Black Lives Matter, that means the opposite of that was Black Lives Don't Matter, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so if we look at that, then we have to look at the dehumanizing process that happened during the colonial period and how the whole concept of races uh, came about in Europe based on fictional science, not even real science, right? Where the racial stratification happened all for colonization, which was part of the capitalism movement to create this industrial country that we now live in, right? Which is destroying the earth. So I say that all to say is that do I believe things are going to change? Absolutely. But just like a seed that you plant, 
whether it's a sunflower, right? It doesn't happen overnight. It happens gradually by watering it, by fertilizing it, by talking to it. We know the the aspect of the science behind talking to plants and how it helps them grow. These are all things. We are seeds. Each of us as human beings are seeds. And the change is happening, but it's going to take work. It's going to be taken because if you really want to say Black Lives Matter, really, okay. Are we going to talk about reparations? Are we going to talk about giving land back to Native Americans? Are we going to talk? Because the whole system is based on hatred. I mean, that that's how it happened. And we're all here together now, right? Where we have we have this, we want to be a democracy, so let's act like it. And that means justice has to happen. So, do I see change happening? Yes. Will it happen? Yes. Is it going to take time and work? Absolutely. It's just not going to happen. Marches aren't going to do it. The whole putting a sign in front of your house that says "Black Lives Matter" is not going to be is is it's not going to work if you're not doing the work. And the work is about people of European American descent reflecting on that and 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 understanding what cognitive dissonance is i'm not even going to break people should look what that term is and how does that play into people of european descent not understanding the history of people of color in this country and how that eradication of that history has almost assuaged or co-signed their ability to ignore that it happened you know what I mean? That it, it, it was created. It's like they're not going to tell you about the history because it makes them feel as, and this is going back in the 17th, 18th century, is like, but we're good Christians. Even though grandpa is, is, is raping the slave over there, he's a good Christian. So we have to make sure that black people were dehumanized and it was black women that were, um, what's the word um um over sexualized right this is what they would say thomas jefferson and then would say that they were dehumanizing them so if they committed crimes against them it didn't matter they're not human it's them it's them that that what that does is it allows them to continue to do these things to these people right these people uh native people african people chinese americans that came here who were overworked all these aspects happen because a history was not told and so all this stuff needs to come about so we can move forward in this country and we can be able be able to have these frank discussions so we can move forward, not for us, not for your and my uh, generation, Josh, for your kids that are you're raising, for their kids that are raising. We're dropping seeds. I see my daughter and her friends, what they, what they call woke. They're, they're so smart. I mean, I, I said, I'm like, oh, my God, I wish she's my daughter, my youngest daughter, 17, and the discussions her and her friends have are not the discussions that I had with my friends at that age. And so I am very hopeful. I'm very optimistic, but I do know it's going to take work for all of us. We're going to have to have those frank discussions, even with people that are our friends that are, you know, I, I have a lot of white friends and we have these discussions and sometimes it doesn't turn out very well because they can't empathize and understand, well, that doesn't make sense. And I was like, you know what? I know it doesn't make sense to you, but you have to learn how to sit down and listen and empathize, right? Empathize because if the shoe was on the other foot, you would understand. All right. Well, Fidel, I really appreciate your time. It's been really enlightening. And uh, I'm, um, I, I feel good about next generation of kids and anybody who's going to interact with you and who has interacted with you because I think that they're in good hands and um, you know maybe we can do this again down the road so thanks um, a lot for taking some time josh thank you so much continue blessings on your podcast and all the work that you're doing i really appreciate it